listening to By the Well, a lectionary-based podcast for preachers recorded on the land of the Wurundjeri people. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable to you, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. Hello everyone, it's Fran Barber here and the voice you just heard then was the Reverend Rachel Cronberger. Hello Rachel. Hi Fran. Uh, Rachel is the minister at Wesley Church in central Melbourne and she's joining by the world today for the readings um, for Pentecost 19. So thanks so much Rachel. So you and I are going to talk today about, aren't we? (laughs) not telling you, we've already decided everyone, it's not that I'm telling you, Um, Exodus 20 verses 1 to 4, 7 and 7 to 9 and 12 to 20. We will have an excursus into Psalm 19 from which you just read then and then the Gospel Matthew 21 verses 33 to 46. So we begin most appropriately really with the Exodus text I think Uh, one that is just so foundational to um, the church's theology about pretty much everything, even though you might not think it is. (laughs) Um, It's also, um, so Exodus 20, which is also you can find in Deuteronomy 5, um, but we're we're looking at the Exodus 20 um, version. Um, I want to point out the absolute importance of the first verse here, which is, Um, then God spoke all these words, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt. This is our context, folks. So this is not, even though we might have read these, um, we will have read these precepts um, on walls of churches and, um, you know, round the place as if they landed out of nowhere. There is absolutely a context from which they cannot be wrestled, um, a drama of which they are a part that, begins with Abraham but actually most recently begins with Exodus 3 and um, Moses and the burning bush. If ever a text was taken out of context, it would have to be Commandments 2 to 9. Yes. Um, because without verse 1, we cannot possibly grasp the commandments that follow. No. The beginning of the relationship begins with God, the lover of these people, the liberator of these people, um, the one who offers them freedom and hope and a covenant relationship of profound faithfulness. And the other one thing I do want to say too about the broader context in which we're preaching these, it's obviously our culture where the whole notion of, of law is very narrow, uh, fairly negatively taken, well, definitely pretty negatively taken. Um, for us, you know, the ultimate... Um, Freedom is choice, us in the, you know, uh, affluent West anyway. Um, you know, you can't impose things on me. I get to decide what truth is for me and um, so on. Um, it is a particularly challenging environment in which to preach the Ten Commandments. They are taken to be negative from go to woe, which actually, as you've indicated very profoundly, the posture of them is not that at all. Um, and they they lend themselves towards freedom. So I just wanting to sort of name outright that that's the environment in which we're trying to talk about this. And the law in um in the Hebrew scriptures really is a revelation of God's love. And so mm. um, this is love that enables 
uh, relationship with God and relationship within the community that will um, will reflect God's love both to God and to one another. Yeah, so they come as a gift. Now, um, I'm reading a bit about the Roman Empire at the moment, um, the history of um, the early Jesus followers, Jewish Jesus followers, and before, but particularly before that. And I think we, understandably, um, forget the we we can't see necessarily the radicality of of this covenant and these um, gifts of these laws, um, because our our context is not. Um, the bowing down to pagan gods, left, right and centre. Oh, indeed, we do have our very many gods. Um, but the context in which this arises is an environment where there's a, you know, I've just been to Ephesus, you know, you, you can see all these sanctuaries set up for these different gods, of gods of the, the sea and the air and the streams and the, and the earthquakes and so on. And um, sacrifices are required of these, but there's a fickleness where one doesn't know whether one's doing enough or not. And how do I appease? How do I um, ensure the future of my family, the future of my community that, that requires the slaughtering of animals? It's in various points as well. So in that environment, to then get that declaration of love and covenant that you've mentioned, and this is a set of um, ways of responding to God's love mm. in relationship um, Points that sort of transcend individual moments um, and are for the good, the worship of God and the good of all. That's remarkable. Yes. And and not only is it a liberation from those, um, from the gods who require fealty and, um, and, and uh, material responses and um, acts of loyalty, this is, this is actually about a relationship of freedom, not only from those gods, but also from human oppressors. So these are people, in verse 2 we read, um, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the house of slavery. Mm. That this is, with God in this role, where no longer the people are no longer subject to the whims of the Pharaoh. Mm. And this will be something that holds the people in hope, in exile in Babylon, under the oppression of subsequent empires and invaders and um, and occupiers of Israel. So it's a, a claim of, of such profound hope um, that it is, it is God. It is this God who loves them, who, who mm. holds them mm. in, in, in this. It goes without saying really, Rachel, doesn't it, that there's so much here that to try to preach on one occasion <laughs> mm. on Exodus 20 is, is asking so much. Now, this is a bit... Weird, but I do want to refer people if they're interested. My dad actually did a series on the Ten Commandments several years ago, um, um, taking each commandment per ser- uh, one sermon for each commandment. Um, they're fairly punchy, and I'll put a reference there for St Mark the Evangelist community in North Melbourne, um, so people can have a re- have a read of those. Um, I think once you've read sort of one sermon or had a look at one sermon on one um, one commandment, it does increase the level of difficulty in trying to write one sermon on on all of them. Um, are there any in particular, apart from um, that first one we've, we've talked a lot about already, that you would say, you know, you're going to preach on this on one occasion. Is there one or two that you would particularly draw out? I think different circumstances um, 
If there's a story that you can tell that is compelling for you that comes from your own heart, your own experience or the experience of your community, um, it can be a way to enter into the Mm. commandments. So to take one, um, it might be that in your community, Sabbath rest is something that is really, really tough for people to claim. Mm -hmm. And so engaging with how Sabbath rest might be a gift of love from God and a gift of love for the community um, would be a way of opening up the possibility of the remaining commandments to be that same gift of love. Mm. Um, And the theological point I would want to make about that one is um, that – we are created in, in according to the first creation story. We we humanity is created at the zenith or at the, at the conclusion of proceedings. Well, the penultimate conclusion, um, and that the first thing for which we are created is the Sabbath. Mm-hmm. Um, that's the first work in inverted commas is to celebrate with God that which is given. Yes. So the first. Um the first one, two, three, four commandments are about relationship with God and the mm. priority of God. And um, and then the first one to follow those is the keeping of Sabbath, that this is, this is how we are in a proper posture towards God, a proper relationship. Mm-hmm. And the remaining ones, it's interesting because we, we've been reading through Exodus, we know that these words in the story are spoken into a fragile community that is in the midst of formation in a harsh environment, really struggling. And um, and the others are frameworks by which people might live in um, peace and, and respect with one another. And we might wonder about um, how else, what other principles, guiding principles we might want to invoke in order to live with that kind of peace mm. and respect with one another. And um, I think... Um, the role of the psalm in the liturgy is really in response to the um, the Hebrew scriptures, and uh, the psalm for this week talks about the law of the Lord being reviving, causing rejoicing, enlightening. Um, that it's uh, more more to be desired than gold, sweeter than honey. Taking that those ideas from the psalm and using them as a way of reading the um, the Ten Commandments here and receiving them as a gift, I think, is another way of um, of approaching. I think I can recall actually a children's se- segment, and others will have done this, it's fairly obvious, but I think I brought some honeycomb and honey along. Um, you know, it's always good to have a physical object when you're talking to young kids, but to bring that psalm alive a bit, and, you know, imagine saying that these laws are actually like this delicacy here, that mm. is a, this rare sort of sort of delicacy. Um, yeah, like this whole process of scripture reinterpreting itself is is wonderful to be conscious about. Um, and I was struck by that with just the one about you shall not murder, um, which seems to be you know such a self evident thing. Most of us would say, <laughs> but that in Jesus' mouth in Matthew. Um, Five, he says, "I say to everyone who's who is angry." So he he shifts, he reinterprets that to be, we might say, mere anger, which 
is very confronting because, of course, we're all very liable to that from day to day. And um, it points to, um, you know, the, the epic story of the Hebrews and Cain and Abel and the anger, you know, that, that, that actually the beginning of murder is that kind of, of a, a response. And if the source of these Ten Commandments is indeed love, then it's what's in your heart and not just what mm. um, what plays out in your actions. It's the um, the integrity of the two that that is is key here. It's a um, I think uh, that idea of gift, that idea of love, that idea of sweetness and joy in the law is an important framework for us because. There's a lot to undo in our culture's reading, both um, a kind of conservative, rigid reading of this as a law that's used to test people, that's used to judge people harshly, that's used to marginalise people within the community. Uh, So on the one hand, um, that takes it out of context, but also to render them as a list of of negative instructions Instructions mm. that uh, are not relevant to a gospel of of life um, is also to take it out of context, and so I think entering in through this path of of love and um, and covenant and faithfulness and liberation and sweetness is um, is really the way to go with this. Yeah, yeah. Do you want to say more about Psalm eighteen, uh, Psalm nineteen, Rachel? Because we could move to that specifically. Sure. So we've already heard one verse which can be used in liturgy that you um, introduced for us, Rachel, that can be read before the reading of the readings or um, indeed the reading of the the speaking of the sermon. So Psalm 19, um, it, at first appearance, it seems to be in two quite distinct halves, um, verses 1 to 6 and then 7 to, 13, or 7 to 14. But actually, I think... Um, the two halves of the psalm uh, are in wonderful dialogue with each other. So in the first half of the psalm, we have the natural world and not not the creation. And we've been um, just been in the season of creation and this isn't really about the the detail of the creation but the big picture, the, the universe, that the heavens are telling the glory of God, the sky proclaims God's handiwork, um, the day pours forth speech and... The night declares knowledge. So each day calls to the next day and each night calls to the next night. Um, But somehow this great song of praise to God from the universe is inaudible and is voiceless. Um, And so we move then into the law, which which somehow expresses Mm. that voiceless universe and expresses the the praise of God um, and the joy and um, and the great song, I just I love that idea of the day calling to the next day mm. and the night calling to the next night. And and what are they saying? What are they telling? They're telling the law of God and this this law of of love and joy. And you know, in Hebrew poetry, um, we often find these um, kind of doublets. So um, one line is almost repeated in the second line. An idea is emphasised. So um, so uh, uh, a phrase is um, is almost repeated um, in order to to fill out a poetic idea. 
But in this we have about six verses where the law of the Lord is described almost identically one after the other. The law of the Lord is perfect. The decrees of the Lord are sure. The precepts of the Lord are right. The commandment of the Lord is clear. The fear of the Lord is pure. The ordinances of the Lord are true. So it's an incredibly strong emphasis on all the ways in which um, the law is at the heart of life and the source of joy and the words with which we um, render praise to God. Yeah. Just as you were speaking, I was thinking um, Christologically for a moment, which I know, you know, we do carefully technically in relation to the Hebrew Scriptures, but we are Christian people who preach. But, you know, I was just thinking about that embodiment of law in Christ Mm. and I was also thinking about the misunderstandings where um, Christ is understood to be some sort of replacement for the law when in fact Jesus, this is Jesus' scripture here in the yes, psalm. I've come Jesus to fulfil the law. I've yes. come to fulfil. Um, and just um, the encompassing in in Jesus' being and doing um, that law and that utter integrity and consistency. I mean, this is the, the living promise who inhabited these laws, this law we've just been talking about, <laughs> um, completely. Mm. Um, and that makes me think – I'm thinking very poetically here, but I also was thinking about cathedrals in Gothic, you know, the 14th, 15th century. Um, they were built – like in a way a psalm could be written of a church that the geometry and um, the unity of the universe is expressed in this majestic architecture. Yeah. Um, there's something echoing there too from this psalm. The psalm's about the law. But in fact, um, believing communities have sought ways to represent that around them in their places of worship in lots of different ways. So I was thinking about places of worship and I was thinking about Christ as you were speaking yeah. the psalm. Yeah, absolutely. And and then the end of the psalm, um, the law is invoked as a way of um, – a means of confession that let the law expose in me anything that might separate me from you, O oh God, is the essence of that prayer. Which is, a, if it can be found in a few sentences here, a great way to begin a prayer of confession. Mm. Yep. Yeah. Shall we move on to the gospel for this week? Yes. Or is there, yep, okay. It's Matthew uh, 21 verses 33 to 46. So our context is that this is the third response to the temple leadership's challenge of Jesus' authority or the origin of it. So already um, they've challenged, well, asked about the meaning of John's baptism. I think before then we need to say that in Matthew's Gospel this comes after Palm Sunday. Mm. So Jesus has entered into Jerusalem, the great political statement of entering like a um, the prophesied king of Israel entering into Jerusalem on a donkey. The people have shouted Hosanna to the son of Mm. David. Um, Jesus has cleansed the The temple temple, and now he's in the temple debating with his own religious leaders. So this is within the Jewish community. Jesus um, and his Jewish disciples in the temple with the chief priests and the elders of the temple and their 
So it's like it's like an intersynod discussion, folks. <laughs> That's right. We, um, which is um, by no means a trivial or merely interesting point to make about the passage, because isn't it one that if we don't take utterly seriously, means we can read all sorts of anti-Semitic, yeah, judgmental things about how we're outside of this, you know, looking in to some other thing. I mean, always to some ex- to some extent, we're doing that with scripture, but actually, it's call upon us, and and, and nabbing us at the collar. <laughs> yes, is what this parable is doing, and we must hear hear the challenge to ourselves in these stories, mm. and not not use them to um, to point fingers at no, others. No. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So this one's pretty, might we say, colloquially full on, very intense. Uh and also to say, and this, you know, if you've done any reading so far, folks, you will know it's um, Jesus' reinterpreting of Isaiah 5. So it'd be a really good idea to read Isaiah 5 or before you can. Or you can. Because in Sinead O'Connor, the um, late Sinead O'Connor's album Theology from 2007, uh, she actually sings this, uh, the song of the vineyard from Isaiah 5. Um, it's called If You Had a Vineyard. Yeah. Um, yeah. But it's worth a, a listen. It's a very moving uh, rendition of of the longing at the heart of the song of the vineyard. Mm. So Jesus again. This is scripture reinterpreting scripture, which reinterpreting scripture. So um, Jesus is reinterpreting that that here. Yeah. Um, obviously, Israel is the vineyard here, but it. You were saying before we pressed record, weren't you, Rachel? This is clearly a parable. Jesus says, listen to another parable. But actually there are allegorical um, elements to this, which means that it's um, deriving its meaning from events outside of self as well as being one a self-contained truth bomb. Yes, <laughs> so. this is a, a who am I, who are you and who do you think I am conversation that is ongoing and becoming increasingly explicit with each um, yeah. Say that again. Say that again. Who? Who am? Who I am? Who you are? And who you, you think I oh, am? Yeah. yeah. Great summary. That's like that <laughs> instruction for an essay. Say it. Say you're going to say it. Say it, and then say say what you oh, say what you said. Say yeah. what you said. <laughs> yeah. So, um, so there's a grappling here with um, you know Jesus launches into this story. It'll be a familiar story to the chief. These are scholar biblical scholars within the temple. Jesus starts talking about the vineyard. Everyone knows straight mm-hmm. away what he's talking about. Um, they're waiting for him to tell them what he really thinks and he tells them what he really thinks. Which is, you vineyard Israel rejected the prophets and killed them. Yeah. Um, and ultimately, I mean, this one here, is it not, as as the parables in the last couple of instances in Matthew, are about the... Um, widening of the vineyard or the transferring of the vineyard to Gentiles. Yes, and and this is um, clearly an, uh, an expression of the situation in the time of Matthew and his writing that um, is a story that's uh, told elsewhere and um, as a preacher Matthew is telling the story perhaps for his own context um, and putting emphases uh, in the way that he tells it um, on that, um, I wonder if before um, we even get into what what happens to the people who come into sure. the vineyard, um, and I don't know the answer to this, but whether the language of tenants 
um, would be experienced as offensive by the people oh. he's talking with, that mm. they're not um, they're yeah. not being named the children, but they're being named the tenants in the vineyard. Or the owners. And they're not the owners either, that this is a, um, a naming – a tenant is a temporary mm. occupant. Um, and as many would know, one that can be turfed out. Yes, that's right. And not – yeah, and not, uh, not holding the ultimate power mm. in the setting. So, I mean, we don't know um, enough probably to know precisely what was provocative about Mm. It strikes me there's a parallel in Christians tending to forget that we um, are embraced in the vineyard as an act of hospitality on the yeah. part of the Hebrew people. So um, we are tenants of tenants. <laughs> yes. Yeah. And there's a humility there. We've I mentioned on and off on this podcast in those terms that um, is explicitly forgotten. Mm. Yeah. Often. And it's interesting because um, the vineyard imagery gives way to an architectural imagery. Um, the stone that the builders rejected mm. has become the cornerstone, and so um, this uh, dynamic of of rejection and acceptance um, is part of part of the story that uh, that Jesus is putting to them. Yeah, yeah, and then, I mean that's a very extremely punchy. Um, this is who I am. Yeah. And it follows from uh, from last week's gospel reading as well, where the two sons in the vineyard, one says, mm. "Yes, he'll come and work," but doesn't, and the other says, "No, he won't, but does." You know, there's yeah, yeah, and and look, the element of judgment's clearly there in those final verses set for today. That um, the one who falls on this stone will be broken to pieces. Um, you know, the kingdom will be taken away from those who don't produce fruit. Yes, that um, and that follows yeah from last week yeah, as yeah. well. That the um, the integrity, the fruitfulness. Um, that the actions of um, that people's identity needs to be revealed in their actions. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So we're coming towards the end of our time, Rachel. I'm wondering, you know, you'll be preaching for this week yes. of these readings. Have you got a sense of where you're going to go? I mean, they're not readings that, apart from no, I don't mean like what you're going to say. That's a bit much. No, no, that's okay. I mean, <laughs> um, which is the text you're leaning towards? Because um, they don't. Well, we can always connect everything. They don't, apart from the psalm and the Exodus reading, you know, um, it's not easy to take all three. So is there one that you're leaning towards for your community? Um, no, I, I do think it's important to uh, take the opportunity to um, to deal with the Ten Commandments, yeah. either in the liturgy or mm. in the sermon because, you know, when I preach – I have uh, two large wooden panels with the Ten Commandments inscribed oh. on them behind me. Uh, you know that this is part of our culture that we've inherited in the church, the um, prominence of the Ten Commandments, mm. and I think it is really important that we deal with that and uh, to call people's attention to the word of life mm. that is embedded in it. Um, the tricky thing is that the gospel reading also needs to be dealt with because mm. I think without comment there is a danger of of reading something which um which might leave us with unhelpful feelings of superiority or Mm. um Mm. unhelpful claims of um dominance yes yeah 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 look i would tend to agree um I would want – I mean, it's all that thing. If you've been in a community for 10 years and you've mm. taken the opportunity to have a go at the Ten Commandments, maybe you'd move more explicitly <laughs> to um, 
to the gospel, but I would agree I'd want to take a chance. And then just to say, just to um, uh, challenge our own task here on the podcast, nothing's stopping you from, you know, obviously preaching on one of those that week and then holding off and doing the gospel the following week. Look, absolutely. Um, and I think it's really important um, whether we whether we preach on the gospel reading or not to find a way of saying somewhere um, if it's re- if it's to be read aloud to find somewhere to say that um, that this is a story for us to hear for ourselves. So it's not a story about someone else. This mm, is a story yeah, yeah. For, for us to take seriously. That to whom will we listen? Mm-hmm. Um, to whom will we give our allegiance yeah. and um, who will we follow and and where will we follow him to? Mm, yeah, yeah. And in, in, in the terms I was thinking, this is a text that is reading us. Mm. Yeah. Yes, absolutely. Well, thanks so much for joining By the World this week, Rachel. It's been great. It's been lovely to be here, Fran. Thank you. By the Well is brought to you by Pilgrim Theological College and the Uniting Church in Australia. It's produced by Adrian Jackson. Thanks for listening.